tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday. Oh, hi, Mac. It's Mark's my name. How are you? Good, thanks, Mark. Where are you? I'm in Dunsborough, WA, just south of Perth. Been chasing a surf down off one of the beaten tracks down here. Every Sunday morning, we, a lot of us get up early and uh, click your your show on as we go hunting the surf. Can I come? <laughs> well, you can actually. I need company. I've just turned up to a spot and there's no one there. Just you and the white pointers. Exactly. So we're all a bit nervous about it these days. It's got to a point where you don't even talk about it in the surf now. It's a bit serious. But Macca, I just wanted to talk just quickly about the, the sweet potato. I grew up as a kid in um, West Papua, Iranjaya, which is the western side of um, Papua New Guinea. The locals there, their staple diet was sweet potato. And there's anecdotal talk that they had 27 different varieties of sweet potato. Wow. And I've come back to Australia and they've got maybe two, three that you see in, in the uh, supermarkets, but none of them are particularly good. I mean, you know, they're okay, but there's just some fantastic varieties over there. You grew up there. How good was that? Yeah, wild. Actually, really, I had a great time <laughs> as a kid, you know, running around with all the locals. Bloody fantastic. I'd love to see an agronomist go over there, bring some samples back and turn them into commercial products because the quality of the sweet potato is so fantastic. We don't know what we're missing, do we, I bet? Oh, no. It, and there's just some that are just buttery, just beautiful eating, you know. Make sure they go over to the west side, not Papua. They're all yam eaters over there. We need so someone to go over the other side. Mark, yeah. great to talk to you this morning. Thanks, Macca. Steer clear of the pointers. Oh, I'll try to. <laughs> See you later. See you, mate. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Mac. Get on with it, Macca. Hi, Will. Good morning. Welcome to the program. Uh, that's why I love this program. You get calls like that. That was Mark going surfing. Uh, we won't talk about sharks, but, um, yeah, a mate of mine said that um, the reason there's more sharks is there's more, well, it seems to be, appears to be more sharks is because there's more whales and they're natural um, predators. But... Um, Apart from that, 27 different varieties. See what we're missing out on? 27 different varieties of yams, sweet potatoes as they call them, yams in uh, in New Guinea. Lovely, lovely stuff. Good morning. Welcome to the program. On the program this morning, a little bit about Darwin, uh, the commemorations during the week of the raid on Darwin, the biggest, much bigger raid than Pearl Harbour, than, uh, but um, it's... Uh, Underdone in terms of letting Australians know about it. I suppose that's because that's what happened when it happened in 1942. Nobody, we didn't want to scare everybody. Don't talk about the war if you know what I mean. So we didn't. Um, and news just trickled out um, in bits and pieces. But uh, a little bit about Darwin during the week. Prickly pear, a little bit about prickly pear. And uh, we'll talk to you, of course, 1300 700 222. This is from Philip. He says, Philip Desborough. This week, the Reserve Bank released the design of our new $20 note. The basic colour remains the same. Uh, the £10 notes from 1925 onwards featured the basic colour of red, and this continued through the decade into the decimal note, so it's still red. Portrait remains unchanged. The note will feature three tactile indentations for the visually impaired, released in October this year. Uh, Philip says, I'd like to see the portrait of Andrew Fisher feature on the reverse of our $5 note. He was our fifth Prime Minister and the father of our banknotes, says Phil Desper. The father, I'd like to know more about that. Andrew Fisher, eh? 
and speaking of Westminster Abbey, which we were a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, life is mostly froth and bubble, and um, Adam Lindsay Gordon. Darren Moncrief says, Macca, there are four. Did I give you the number? 1300 700 222. Love to talk to you wherever you are. Um, Macca, there are four Australians recognised or buried at Westminster Abbey. I thought uh, Adam Lindsay Gordon was buried there, but uh, not so. Howard Florey, the pioneer of penicillin, is memorialised uh, in South Australian granite. The only poet um, is Adam Lindsay Gordon. Memorialised, uh, a bust of Adam unveiled in 1934 in the poet's corner of the Abbey by the Duke of York was carved by Kathleen Scott, wife of the Antarctic explorer Scott. Adam called South Australia home, recognised for his service to police, force, poetry and politics. There are only two Australians buried at Westminster Abbey, classical scholar Gilbert Murray and Sir William McKee, organist and master of choristers at the Abbey, at the Abbey from... 1941. So there you go. Um, as well on the program, and, and I get little cards and bits and pieces, which I love. This one was from a lady called Belinda Fraser. She's a textile designer and artist, and she just says, G'day, Macca. Um, and on her card, she's got the Farmer's Toast um, design. Is a design that I've created, and printer was inspired by the Farmer's Toast originating from England and printed on mugs by a company that was established in the 1600s. Gee, that's a while ago. I've altered it slightly to make it more relative to the Aussie farmer. That's what I do with songs. I sometimes rewrite them. Um, I'm a, te- a textile designer, says uh, Belinda, living in northeast Victoria, and I'm passionate about promoting our rural towns and country people generally. Um, there you go. And she's got a website, Birds Australia. But anyway, this is the um, it's the farmer's toast, and this is what it says. Let the wealthy and great roll in splendour and state. I envy them not, I declare it. I eat my own lamb, my chickens and ham. I shear my own fleece, and I wear it. I have lawns, I have bowers. I have fruit, I have flowers. The magpie is my morning alarmer. So jolly boys now, here's Godspeed to the plough, long life and success to the farmer. Isn't that nice? That's lovely. A lovely card too, lovely sort of thick brown paper, which she's obviously designed. Um... Belinda Fraser is her name. Uh, a lovely little note. Thank you, Belinda. Uh, 1300 700 triple two. G'day, this is Macca. Hi. Hello. Oh, g'day, Ian. It's Kieran. Kieran Kelly. Where are Hi. you, mate? I'm in Teddy Ride in Western Colorado. And um, we've had quite a lot of adventures here this week. Um, a guy was killed in an avalanche yesterday. He wasn't an Australian, but it follows a, a terribly disheartening pattern because, uh, as you know, Max Meyer, young Sydney teenager, was killed in St Anton uh, about a month ago, and then just the day before yesterday, a 40-year-old woman from New South Wales was killed in uh, in Whistler in Canada. And it's uh, it's an amazing season, but I think Australians coming over here have to realise that we come from a very flat hot country and a lot of people are inexperienced with mountains and I don't think they realise just how quickly a mountain can let go given that it's been such an extraordinary season probably the most unusual season in 50 years and people have to be careful You've had more snow, I mean they've had heaps of snow I've seen pictures of Chicago for God's sake even, I mean just um, huge amounts of snow and I suppose on the mountains as well Kieran 
it's unbelievable, Ian. Um, I mean, you know, skiing for over 40 years, I've never seen anything like it is in Turdy right here at the moment. And they're dynamiting a lot, which is bringing, you know, the, the snowfalls down. But they're, they're, I went up early this morning and watched them dynamite a slope here. And one stick of dynamite, and I'd, it just brought the whole side of the mountain down. And I skied on the slope they were dynamiting. And it was... I was on the other side of the valley just watching. But it's horrific. It's horrific. But what's happening with Australians, which is the woman in New South Wales who's just killed in Whistler was in a restricted area that's totally closed to the public at all times. You're just never allowed in there. She skiboarded, snowboarded in, took off the snowboard and started to walk, fell off a 200-metre cliff, 200-metre cliff, mind you, and, and triggered an avalanche. So... There are consequences, and my advice to Australians coming over here is never go under the orange ropes. There's a thing called an orange rope here, and it means that the area's um, closed off. And if you cross it, you're committing a felony. The interesting thing that happened here yesterday was two snowboarders dropped the rope, as it's called, which means went under the orange rope. They triggered an avalanche that killed a man who was about 150 metres down the slope in a totally legal area and they've now been charged with involuntary manslaughter. So for Australians coming over here, a lot of them, and I didn't the first time I realised, if you cross one of these orange ropes, you're committing a federal felony. And they rope these areas off for good reason because they're dangerous. And a lot of Australians don't seem to realise that, that, that those orange ropes are a serious thing. And uh, and you'll kill other people. It's not just yourself. You'll kill other people. That's the that's the whole thing. That's why it's a felony, I suppose. I guess that's right. Yeah, maybe people don't realise that. Uh, uh, look, um, this is a wonderful sport. And at the moment, as I sit here talking to you, there's Australians in Whistler, in Fernie, in 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 uh, Revelstoke in Canada. They're in Aspen. They're in. Uh, um, Jackson Hole, and they're here. I, I went up this morning with a lovely Australian family, a, a gentleman and his two sons, and he has a speciality business growing uh, vegetable seeds and, and, and herbs in Tasmania, and and I managed to show them around the mountain. They've never been here before. But, of course, people, if they don't know the mountains, can stumble so easily into areas where it's potentially very dangerous. And uh, I think great caution has to be taken and maybe Australians take it too lightly I don't know but it's if you think about it we've already had two Australians killed this winter and there hasn't been two Australians killed by sharks and everyone makes a song and dance about sharks I think avalanches are uh, seem to kill more people. Well, lots of Australians seem to travel overseas to wherever it is, to Japan or um, in Canada or Colorado to go skiing, so it's timely warning. I remember when you were in New Zealand and you said uh, New Zealand's a very dangerous place to start climbing snowy mountains and stuff because they're liable to shear off at the drop of a hat, if you know what I mean. is that That's true, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, you can never tell what's going to trigger them off. I was booked to go backcountry skiing this week myself and... I just started to feel uneasy, you know, day after, it's snowing day after day after day. And it builds up and builds up and builds up and there's six feet of snow just on one of the bridges here. And I went into the guiding company and I said, I'm not feeling good about this. And they said, no, it's too dangerous. We're going to, we're going to postpone. And I think the thing is, you've got to learn you're in a different environment. If somebody, if you're in Birdsville 
and and you say to a local who's been living there for 40 years, is the Georgina River going to come down? And they say yes, or they say no. I think you have to listen. So the guy who I, I've got to know here, who's an excellent backcountry guide, he's lived here all his life, and when I said to him, I'm, I'm nervous about this, and he said, I am too, I think it's way too dangerous for us to take you out there, then I think you've got to listen. You know, you've got to listen to these people and take their advice, and if the ski patrol closes off an area, you just don't ski on it. And we've speaking of Birdsville, we just put a picture up on our um, Facebook uh, of uh, was sent to us by David Brook, who lives out at Birdsville, of course, of the Diamantina down and Birdsville surrounded, mate. You can't get into Birdsville. Um, the uh, floods from up the north from the Lorraine event the other day are down in, around Birdsville, so Birdsville surrounded by water, mate. Well, isn't Australia a paradox? In one part of the country, you've got a a, a flotilla of pantechnican trucks bringing hay to drought-stricken farmers, and in the other part of the country, the farmers are six feet underwater. Uh, I think that's the amazing thing. But the other extraordinary thing is, in Australia, we've had what heat waves of setting 50-year records, and here we've had snowfalls setting 50-year records. I just wonder if they aren't somehow related. Well, that, um, when a, who knows? Yeah, who knows exactly? Kieran, uh, great to talk to you, mate. Take care. How long are you over there for? I'll be over here for about another three weeks. I'm doing a speciality course next week in the biomechanics of skiing. It's run by an orthopaedic surgeon and a, and a famous ski instructor. And I'm at the age 66 where I'm trying to push myself and learn new things. And I think uh, they've given us the course notes and everything. I think it's going to be really interesting. It's how your body actually performs when you ski and try and make you ski better. Yeah. Um, when you come home, you better come in and tell us all about it, Okay. Well, yeah, I, I will. I'll be dodging the avalanches. And a timely warning for Australians who are about to go over, because they go over now, don't they? They tend to go over because the, they and they've heard the stories about all the snow everywhere. So, um, yeah, take well. It's good advice. Whatever you're doing, isn't it? Take care. Take care. Okay. Good on you, Kieran. Good morning, Jared. G'day, Macos. Mate, uh, very, very quickly, um, I'm I'm involved in a, a rural mental. Uh, health initiative in the coming week mm. and what we've called it is the big community muster and we've been able to uh, obtain the services of a very fine psychologist and renowned international speaker Dennis Hoiberg and what we're going to do is we're going to do 12 locations in six days and we're starting at a little place called Oaklands just west of Albury today and we're going to go to Denny and Hay on Monday but I do Condo and Ningen on the, the Tuesday. Then we're going Baradine. We're going to Rowena. We're going to Moree. We're going to Narrabri, Gunnedah, Tamworth, and finishing in Scone next Friday. Wow. So how yeah. long how long will you be in each place? For an hour or two, will you? Yeah, the, the, uh, each seminar will probably run about two and a half hours. We're going to put on a meal for the participants, and we're also going to ensure that we have uh, credited childcare facilities so both the mum and the dad can get along to it. And it's called the Big Community Muster in places like Oatlands, Denny Hay, Condo, Ningen, Baradine, uh, Rowena, Moree. Um, I missed a few of them, but uh, yeah. is that what's called the Big Community Muster? That's it. If people are looking for details, uh, Macra, if they type in the Big Community Muster in their search engine, it'll take them straight there. We all need one of those, uh, a Big Community Muster. Jared, good on you, mate. Um, what's it like wherever you are? You're in Hawkeye. Uh, yeah, 
I'm out on my farm just uh, northwest of Albury. Uh, 30, it's a beautiful day, but very dry, Mac, and we need rain badly too. All right, mate. Good on you, Jared. Keep in touch, mate. Righto. Thanks, Mac. I appreciate you. it. Bye. 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 Oh, g'day, Macca. It's uh, Tony Benici's my name, mate. I'm from uh, Aussie Helpers. I'm ringing on behalf of Brian Egan. How are you going? Good, thanks, Tony. Yeah, good. Where are you? Uh, I'm based in Melbourne at the moment, mate, and uh, Brian would normally ring, but he's in transit from Brizzy at the moment, and uh-huh. we'd like to uh, have a chat to you and your listeners about a new initiative that Aussie Helpers is uh, is launching called Australia Buy a Cow. Um, yes. What it is, is um, only about three or so weeks ago, we were assisting farmers in uh, North Queensland um, with drought. And uh, now all of a sudden, um, it was they've been inundated with flooding. And uh, it's estimated that over 300,000 cattle and uh, God knows how many sheep have been lost as a result of, uh, of those floods. Mm. Um, so this initiative uh, called Australia Buy a Cow... Uh, was actually um, uh, thought of, thought about by a number of uh, Victorian dairy farmers actually um, to raise money um, so that we would end up with about five million dollars to purchase cattle to allow mum and dad and family uh, primary producers to restock um, because obviously the floods have had a pretty massive uh, effect on finances and to restock is uh, a very expensive exercise. So we've set up a website called www.australiabuyacow.com and if people are interested, they could donate as little as $10 uh, towards this initiative. Aussie Helpers has already put in half a million dollars uh, towards it and will cover all of the administration and uh, advertising costs as well. And hopefully we'll be able to... um, have a program where we would assess uh, the mum and dad farmers who are in need and be able to provide them with uh, the, the amount of stock which will enable them to breed and restock again. And, uh, and this initiative will also help uh, with some drought-affected farmers as well because up north um, it's a little bit greener now and we may be able to organise adjustment for some drought-affected farmers um, up there Down and south. sort of work, work either way, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is a great thing. So that's www.australiabuyacow.com. Dot com, yes, that's, absolutely. That's easy. I'm sure lots of people will have $10 or even more, mate. There's lots of people who who put their hand in their pocket for that because that's what Australians do. That's exactly right, mate. Tony, uh, what's your story? Well, I'm a director with Aussie Helpers. Uh, I'm not a farmer. Um, I I was inspired by uh, Aussie Helpers uh, and Brian and Nerida Egan's story uh, when I heard about them back in the early 2000s uh, during the millennium drought. And uh, I'm uh, I'm a muso. When we were playing up up bush during that time and just saw just how devastating it was all the way from Victoria right up into Queensland. Mm. And that's when we heard about uh, Brian and Nerida and how they basically started this charity from literally a, a, a raffle in their local pub in Charleville. And, uh, and from there, uh, I got to meet them, and uh, I've been a director with Aussie Helpers since uh, 2009. Well, there you go. Well, keep up the good work. Uh, www.australiabuyacow.com. Simple. That's it. Thanks, mate. Good on you, Tony. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye. 
I'll tell you why I live where I live. I don't know if you know much about the Gulf Country, except that uh, they had a terrible rain event a couple of weeks ago, but I thought this might help to explain a little bit about it. It's from my correspondent, Margaret, Margaret Harrison, who's written to us over the years from time to time about all sorts of things. Margaret used to live at Mungandai, you'll find that on your maps, but a couple of years ago she moved to the Gulf Country and she's written to me about that and she's also written something far more topical. But she said when she moved, she said, Ian, this is another amazing part of the world. I didn't know much about the far north and everything about it felt quite foreign to me. The soil, the weather patterns, the animals, the trees could have been from another country. They were so different to Mungandai. It's what they call the dry tropics. Great wide dry rivers of sand cut across the earth during the dry season, which is most of the time. When I first saw the magnitude of these sand rivers, it seemed impossible they could ever be filled with water. In some parts they're a few kilometres or more across. But of course, they do fill with water, and in the wet season there's more water than you can imagine. The rivers break their banks and form lagoon after lagoon after lagoon. From the air, they look like these amazing gleaming necklaces, soft green at the edges with moss. It's quite wondrous. We were so very fortunate recently to miss the floods. They were south of us. We had our turn last year when Cyclone Nora got stuck in the Gulf and dumped 600 mils, that's 24 inches, on us in 48 hours. It did a lot of damage, but nothing on the scale of this disaster. I can't stop thinking about those poor souls who've lost everything. It's a tragedy of epic proportions. My brain just won't handle the numbers. How is it possible that upwards of 300, 400,000 cattle could be dead? I write about things to try and understand and to make sense of them. I imagine myself there and how I would feel. I have written a piece called Broken. It may be of interest to you and your listeners. Regards, Margaret Harrison. And this is that piece. I watched from the veranda as the chopper landed near the shed. The helipad was a rough patch of gravel that peeked out from the surrounding water. My husband hopped out. He hung onto his hat as his bent form cleared the blades. It was our turn to use the chopper to check on the cattle. We were worried, but while we didn't know for sure, maybe it would be okay. But I knew now it was bad, just from watching him walk, head down. He was moving too slow. No wave to the chopper as it thudded away. I called out his name, but he didn't look up. I pushed the gauze door open and called again, louder this time. He still didn't look up. I called again. I started to run as the door banged behind me. Panic and dread had found me somehow. They lunged into my chest and took all my breath. I stopped. I could not move without air. Deep down, I knew this moment would come. I knew what was wrong. When the rain came and it didn't stop and the cold wind blew for days and days, we knew it would kill. We just hoped not too many. We wished the cattle were stronger, but we'd been in drought for so long. He finally reached me and I started to breathe. Tell me, please tell me, I said. You've been gone all day. He said... They're all dead, all gone. I should have been quiet, but I babbled instead. No, no, what do you mean? They can't all be dead. No, you're wrong. You opened the gates, then you pushed them into Van Rook. Your grandfather said it was the best paddock for cattle in a flood. You said they'd be right. They'd always been right in Van Rook. You said... I couldn't say any more because he did a strange thing. He covered his eyes with his hands and was gasping for breath. He fell to his knees and into the mud. He was crying. It frightened me more than everything so far. I crouched down and tried to take his hand from his face, but he pushed me away. 
He shouted, They're all dead. Do you hear me? All of them. There's none left. There's only water out there. Nothing else. They're piled in corners along fence lines. They're all dead. I stepped back too quickly and slipped in the mud. Now we were both in the mud. I slumped forward and put my head to his chest. I felt his hands on my head. We had both run out of words. I don't know how long we stayed there or how we got inside. I remember the shower and watching the mud run over the tiles and into the drain. I learnt later that there were some cattle alive, but they shot them from the chopper. They were trapped in the mud, too weak to move, starving to death. All the native animals were dead as well. This newly formed ocean was bereft of life. I don't like thinking about our cows too much. They'd got so tame from us feeding them during the drought. They were beautiful, a bloodline that had taken generations to form. If I close my eyes, I can see the dust rise from their hides with each pat of my hand. My favourite was Nora, who I'd raised from birth after her mother had died, a gangly, potty calf with silky, floppy ears and dark brown eyes. She would nudge me when she wanted more hay. I can't think of Nora dying slowly in the cold, starving and exhausted from the struggle of fighting the mud. I didn't want her to die like that. I didn't want any of the animals to die like that. The phones keep ringing, but we can't answer them now. We send texts in reply. That's all we can do. I remember the happy calls in the first couple of days ringing the neighbours to see what rain they'd had. For two days we were happy, but then it kept raining and it beat on the roof day and night. Its constant thrum brought worry instead. The weather prediction seemed too dire to be true. We checked all the weather sites constantly to see when it would clear, but it just got worse. Then the temperature dropped and the wind started to blow. Neither of us said, but both of us knew, that weak, hungry cattle would die in this wind. The house was safe, but the sheds filled with water. There was no dry land in any direction. The flood had come, and there was no ark. And now, I think I'm on suicide watch. My husband's not eating or sleeping. He stops halfway through a sentence and forgets where he is. He doesn't cry. He hardly talks. I think if I watch him, it'll keep him safe. I don't know what else I should do and how we'll manage the thousands of dead cattle. How will we bury them? I don't think we have enough machinery to do it. When I asked, he said, we'll work it out. But I don't know how we'll work it out. And then there's the money, the bank and the bills. I can't think about that now. It's all too much. You know, we thought the drought was bad. It had gone on too long, but never. Ever did we expect something like this. Our cattle were our love, our livelihood, our life. Now they're gone, all dead. We feel broken. That's all I can say. Mark and I, while the um, news was on, etc., and we're playing the song, we're talking about um, kids and PE. Because and, Mark's a, a rower, he's got a rowing machine, he invented a rowing machine. But he's also been a rower all his life. He's a fit bloke. He's not overweight. He's 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 uh, into um, wholemeal bread. That's his. Um, but apart from that, it's um, we were talking about PE at school, and because uh, I've got some little you know nieces and stuff that go to um, to school, and I asked uh, the other day how many PE, and I think they do PE once a week. Well, you've got a theory. It's just not enough because I can just tell people my wife's a PE teacher, and her final honours year she did. Daily PE is her honours thesis, and I read it all. This is 1983, by the way, so it's a long time back. 
and there's there was multiple schools in France where they introduced daily PE, and they would get average increase of in IQ. Never mind the physical um, capacity. The multiple classes where the the average increase in IQ was ten points, and you cannot do that any other way but by a brain transplant. Mm. Um, so you know to see that benefit, and I, and I thought, well, this is fantastic. It'll take off next week. It'll be all through our schools, and in fact, the exact opposite has happened. It, but it's completely up to the, the teacher. The other day, I read, I spoke to a little friend, uh, a little daughter of a. A good friend, Andrew, Little Lily, and um, she's at Belrose Public. I'm happy to give them a plug. Uh, it's up to the headmaster now, and every day they start off with half an hour of, I think they call it fizzy or physical or something. And I said, do the kids muck up? And she said, oh, no, if we muck up, we lose 15 minutes the next day. And she was the brightest, you know, she's not, the, I don't know if she's the greatest sportswoman, but she is the brightest, most engaged little student you would ever see. And uh, I just thought, well, there's, well, I think there's that's, the proof. I th- you know, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. Mm. Every morning when you have assembly and then yep. go and do, I don't know, half an hour or an hour or whatever. Around. Yeah, structured. It's not, you know, but it's not like... Running around. Yeah, you know, a little bit structured and fun. And, you know, they go and their little brain gets a big dose because when you exercise, you get brain development hormones it's called neurotrophic development factor, mm. uh, brain neurotrophic development factor. And, and it's just, you know... Uh, and around the world and in science. Australia too, the obesity epidemic yeah. and, and, and they're trying to think about what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30 years. It's probably yep. even on us before that. It seems like it's almost, you, you'd almost make, I mean, you make, can't make things compulsory, but, but a, a good headmaster or well, headmistress principal. I, I think you, when you've got them in primary school, it's part of your responsibility to actually make it compulsory, you know, to teach them this is how you run your life. You don't have to go to the Olympics. There's nothing to do with that. It's just saying you start your day with some exercise, you keep it as part of your program, and then you, your chance of a whole lot of diseases just drops through the floor. Mm. So, you know, for all of us benefit, but, but you particularly have a, a better life. You, but it's nothing to do with being a super sports person at all. Mm. Um, I don't know what we do, but uh, I can't remember. I think, I think we had PE twice a week, but it was, a, it was just mm. another period, like 40 minutes. So you do maths and then you'd have PE and then... We just jumped, I forget, we ran and jumped on well, the we springboard did, and rolled We did some over. proper stuff, but I think now there's a lot more of, you know, examining the actual, what would happen if we went for a run rather than let's actually just go <laughs> for a run, you know. So get, get examined on, on well, the, you, the benefits rather You'd think that will almost be a, a, you know, that we do, hello, good morning, yes, uh, we go, we're going to run around the oval for yeah. 20 minutes and then we'll go in and go freshen and up and started. then get started and still um, spell necessitous and all those. <laughs> and you probably spell necessitous a lot better as a result of the <laughs> brain exercise you just had. There you go. <laughs> in a little while, we're going to talk about cane toads and all sorts of things. The King, Mark was came in um, officially really to talk about the King's Cup, which is on the... 31st of March. At Penrith. So at Penrith. It, it's always held at Penrith now, is it? Mostly. It, it's The course is so good and so fair, but it, it does move around. We were in um, Tassie, you know, we, they would, I think they'll do more moving around, but it'll be based at Penrith a lot of the time, simply because everyone gets a fairer go and it's just a magnificent course. So There yeah. you go. Listen to this. Uh, this is I haven't read any of these emails. Um, uh, David Falks says, I heard the appeal to support our farmers, jumped online and made a quick donation of $100. Every little bit helps. Love the show. This is David and Helen Falks. Isn't that nice? Good on you. Bye. That's 
AustraliaBuyAcow.com, I think. Is that it? That's good it. good yeah. on you. I'm getting on there straight after I leave here. Um, Frank says, I used to just hear the 30 minutes or so of your podcast, but now discovered I can listen back to almost all the show. The wife sent in a request last week and you got her name spot on, Juanita. I've heard people pronounce it Yolan and Jawanita, and she is as Irish as they come, so congrats on getting it, getting it right. By the way, she's here with me in Tipperary. I spend half a year, a year and a half, sorry, in Australia, and every Sunday I love listening to the show, especially sitting outside the tent with the car radio on, enjoying the scenery or whatever. I camp with people ringing in from different parts, amazing, resilient people and an amazing country. Now I listen while driving a tractor in Ireland at work. Keep it going. It's very relaxing, calming sort of show. It's not calming in here, mate, Frankie. G'day, this is Macca. Quick look at the time. Hello, Hello Macca. Yeah. Michael King. Yes, Michael. Um, I'm the bloke who's organising the strainer post to go over to Queensland. Oh, right. Oh, you're um, in WA? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're in oh, Geraldton at home, but I'm actually doing the work out of Port Hedland across there. Oh, right. So is that where you are this morning? Yeah, no, I'm not in Port Hedland. I'm in Geraldton still organising. All oh, right. Macca, the logistic of this, you put a call out last week you know, for, from Kevin yeah. from Blasade to uh, look for some strainer posts. So we put a bit of a package together starting last Sunday and we've ended up with a 1,000 tonne of <laughs> posts to, to go across. Yeah. Uh, currently putting together 16 triple road trains. Wow. Um, all, all, all donated. There's, um, Gee, that's a bit of work for you, Michael. Do you need a hand in any way? Well, we do. Yes, we look. We're looking for an additional <coughs> donated four triple road trains, um, <laughs> le- leaving from uh, around the Port Hedland area on the eighth. Eighth um, of March. To, yeah, to arrive in Concurry about the fifteenth. Okay, uh, it'll be a road train. Remember that we got ourselves a convoy. You'll have a convoy there, mate. Well, well, we'll have more than the convoy. It um, <laughs> looks like not a lot of people. You know, like there's. The, the owners seem to be a lot of the, the original owners of the, the, the gear, you know, whether they got drivers or not. So how do they get in touch with you, mate? Um, uh, you're just getting it done like Andrew Forrest said to us once when we were after the Blazade fires, we talked to Andrew Forrest, and you're just the sort of bloke getting it done, just like... Just, just ring up and tell people what you want. Don't, don't, it's not a negotiable situation. Like the, you, you know the people that you're asking probably really want to do it. They mm. just need someone to ask them. Yeah. And, uh, we've got horrendous, you know, like we've got big companies who are giving us fuel. Um, we're still negotiating a bit on that, so we can't say too much about it. Mm. We've got, um, obviously, a 1,000 tonne of um, posts to go. There's all the trucks. Everyone who's put in there is probably, a, a truck is really worth probably eight to $10,000 alone without the fuel and that in it. Yeah, exactly. Now, so... so- uh, do you want people to get in touch with you, Michael? Yes, yes. What's I do. the number? What's the number? Zero four two eight. Yep. Nine two nine five nine eight. Nine eight. There, Australia. Oh four two eight nine two nine five nine eight. Michael King. Yeah, and also Macca. Quick. We're, we're ch- at eight hundred kilometres apart from Port Hedland. We're looking for roadhouses or facilities we can stop at on the on the journey across. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to. Beg and borrow from them with about fifty odd people. All we want to do is have somewhere we've got amenities and facilities. And which we, which way are you going? Which way do you go? Uh, Port Hedland, Broome, Derby, cross over to Catherine. You know, Cunanara, Catherine. 
back right. down, back down to the three ways, and, and then back back across the bar. And you're leaving on, leaving on the eighth of March. Around the eighth, it okay. should be it should be finished loading and gone by on the eighth. All right, oh four two eight. Sorry, oh four two eight nine two nine five nine eight. Yeah, give Mike. us a. I'll give you a ring next Sunday and give you a posting. Good on you. Thanks, mate. Right on. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.